The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening, everyone. It's nice to see you and see familiar faces and coming out on this chilly winter night. It's good to have some chill in the air. If you were here two weeks ago before Thanksgiving, you know that uh, this series of talks is about time, something that none of us pay a whole lot of attention to. I know that we've all transcended any concerns about time and <laughs> our lives just flow with an abundance of time and appreciation. This is uh, a little poem by Nar- Nargajuna, who was a very uh, famous sage from India in Buddhism. And it's entitled Time. Are you hearing me okay? Hearing me okay? Okay. Yeah, everything's on. Okay. No, it's fine if they're hearing me. It's okay. So, if I had a past... What is now and yet to come would have already happened. Were there no now and future then, how could now and future ever have a past? Without a past, there is no now and future. What is now and still to come would never happen. Past, present, future are like bottom, middle, top. One, two, three. You can't grasp time. And times you can are never time itself. Why configure time you cannot grasp? If time depends on things, how could I ever have time apart from things? Without things, how can time persist? If you understand that, please let me know. (laughs) I'd appreciate your help. For me, it points very uh, gracefully to the complete paradox of time in our practice. We all just sat for 30 minutes of clock time, and every one of us had a different perception of what that time amounted to. Some of us drifted off into quasi-sleep, and the time just went like that. Some of us were totally awake and focused, and the time dragged on and on. Is she ever going to ring that bell? Some of us got lost in some story from our past, or some worry about the future. And then we came back to to now, to the present. And then we might have left again and gone off into some other part of time. 
So if you were here a couple of weeks ago, or if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, I'll give a little summary of what I've talked about so far in this uh, topic. There's a wonderful book by Rob Berbia entitled Seeing That Freeze, Meditations on Emptiness. And he writes, we can consider that just like left, center, and right, the very notions of past, present, and future depend on each other. So left, center, and right are totally dependent upon each other. Depending upon which way you're looking or where you're sitting, left, center, and right will be different for any of us. But they're all dependent upon each other. You can't have a left without a right. And then there's the center there in the middle. And likewise, past, present, and future. You can't have the present without thinking of the past or thinking about the future. They're meaningless. So how come it is that we're so bound up in time, especially in our lives? And particularly, it shows up when we sit to practice. Sometimes the time in our practice flows beautifully, and other times it seems like it's taking forever. And why am I sitting here when I have so many things to do? Our struggle with time is because we confuse it with space. We can fill space with things, such as this room. There's a lot of space in here, and we filled it with chairs, we filled it with people, we filled it with the rug and the altar, and etc. So space can be filled with things. Time, however, cannot be filled with things. We imagine that we're doing that. We imagine that we're filling our time with events. But events are space. They're things. And they can fit in space. Just like this event tonight is here in this space but it does not fit in time. That's the deep paradox. Rabbi Abraham Heschel fully captures this struggle that we have in his wonderful book about the Sabbath. He says, it is impossible for humanity to shrink the problem of time the more we think we realize we cannot conquer time through space. We can only master time in time. What we plead against is humanity's unconditional surrender to space, our enslavement to things. So we do our best 
to fill the space in our lives with events, with people, with possessions, with education, with doing, with not doing. We fill that space in our lives and we conflate the space with time. You will be in this space for a certain amount of time. But time does not measure itself in the way space does. That's where our biggest confusion comes. And the entire list of things we use to distract ourselves is what creates the dukkha, the suffering of our lives. What is time is the wrong question because it's a question about things. Time is not a thing. Let me say that again. What is time is the wrong question. We say, what is this? This is a place to sit. What is this? This is a rug. What is this? This is a podium. What is this? This is my watch. We can ask, what is this about things? What is this evening? It's a Dharma talk and a meditation. It's an event. We can ask, what is this about events? We can ask, what is this about things? But we cannot ask, what is this about time? It is not a thing or an event. So, what is it? What is time? Well, for one thing, no one in this room, no one in this world, no human being has ever experienced the past, or the future. The only time we have ever known is right now. We can imagine the past of the future, and we can remember the past, but we have never experienced it, because all we experience ever is the present. And yet, the past and the future drive us crazy and keep us from being fully present in the present because we keep getting pulled to memories of the past that disturb us, worries about what we did or didn't do, And especially we worry about the future. And whenever we do either of those things, of course, we leave the present. We're no longer experiencing the only thing that we can actually experience, which is the present. The only time that we can actually experience, which is the present. And our worries 
and regrets about the past and the future block us from that experience. Oops. So, linear time driven by the clock and absolute one-dimensional time dominates us and our world. And that time, that linear time, keeps us from being awake and aware in this moment and in this moment and in this moment. We just are stuck. There was a time in my past that I believe happened because I have a pretty strong memory of it when if I had heard what I'm saying right now I would have thought wow that guy is really a whack job and I would have probably taken a deep inhale of something that now is legal in California and I no longer have any interest in it and wondered about time and in that particular time in my life, I was in the army during Vietnam. And the army has quite a rigid perspective of time, if any of you have ever experienced that organization. Things run on a very regular perception of time. Clock time drives it. And I was a young lieutenant. And I was a top secret courier, which meant that I had the most secret clearance that you could possibly get about our nation's secrets none of which I ever really saw because they were all in boxes or bundles that I carried around on various forms of transportation. And they gave me a 32 caliber pistol with four bullets, only four. And I said, hmm, this is dangerous because if somebody wanted what I've got, they would definitely come with more than four bullets. So I elected not to carry my 32 caliber pistol with four bullets. And that began my sort of uh, unskillful two years in the Army. And at the courier station in Alexandria, Virginia, in the suburbs of D.C., our nation's secrets whirled in and out, primarily, obviously, from Vietnam during that particular time. And those of you who are old enough remember that was when there was the first plane hijacking. Before that, we flew on commercial aircraft. And then, once there was a hijacking, we flew on other forms of aircraft and trucks, etc. And one day, when you're, you're either out flying and 
taking stuff from place to place like a postman, but it's top secret and very sacred stuff. Or you're in the station for a 24-hour stretch where you're like the postman. You have to count everything that comes in and everything that goes out, and you're responsible if there's any discrepancy in what came in and what went out. And during that time, I had a bunch of enlisted men who would work in the station, and most of them would definitely be inhaling the stuff that is now legal or doing something even stronger than that. And one day, I'm standing with a big tractor-trailer truck of our nation's secrets that had come from Dover, Delaware Air Base. And the couriers in the Air Force were sergeants, and the couriers in the Army, as I've told you, were young lieutenants. Not a good combination. And this old, crusty sergeant had driven, or he had rode shotgun in the truck that came from Dover, Delaware Airport, our air base, and I'm standing there checking off all the pieces, and it takes hours. It's a tractor-trailer truck full of stuff. And as the truck starts to unload, I look in the back, and there's what appears to be a gigantic bullet. And it's in a wooden frame, but you could see the bullet. And I'm thinking, what is that? That looks like a nuclear warhead. It couldn't be a nuclear warhead. I'm in a commercial district in Alexandria, Virginia, with all kind of businesses all around me, and Interstate 495 is just half a mile away. That couldn't be a nuclear warhead. And as the truck got more unloaded, I climbed onto the truck, and I looked, and there was that yellow and black nuclear sign. It was indeed a nuclear warhead. And I looked at the label, and it said it came from Ankara, Turkey. Some of you might remember that there was a great controversy on whether the United States had nuclear warheads in Ankara, Turkey, when Johnson was president during the Vietnam War. I was aware of that when I looked, and I asked the old sergeant, I said, this looks like a nuclear warhead. And he sort of laughed, ha, 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 ha. And I said, I didn't think we had nuclear warheads in Ankara, Turkey. That's what it said in the paper and on television, and he laughed and said, ha, 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 well, we don't now. And I said, it's against Army Regulation 53-472, subparagraph B, to carry weapons, to send weapons through the courier service. So how could you possibly be doing this? And he looked at me like I was the unsophisticated young person that I was. And I said, I'm not signing for this. 
which would have meant transferring control to me. I said, all I've got is this little forklift. And I got these five or six stoned enlisted men, and I'm going to take this nuclear warhead off your truck with a forklift and sit it here in this warehouse in Alexandria, Virginia, and be responsible for it for 24 hours? No. You sign for it. You keep it. And he said, well, what am I going to do with it? And I said something that I won't repeat here. And he got angry, of course, and he went to my commanding officer. And this, had, this was not the only time I had such difficulties. And as I look back on that story of that time in my past, I see my unconsciousness, but I also see my unskillful relationship with time. Because what happens to all of us is that we cling to a perception of what should or should not be. And that clinging creates our concept of time. Both in and out of meditation, we can notice that the sense of time becomes more prominent when there is a greater degree of craving or aversion to something. Having to, for example, wait in line when we don't want to or when we want to be somewhere else, dreading or hankering after an event in the future, or aversion to discomfort and waiting for the end of a meditation session, time seems to have more weight and intensity. Conversely, when grasping and aversion are relaxed, the sense of time becomes lighter. Now just think about your experience. The times when you don't like what's happening right now, the times when you want to be somewhere else or with someone where else or with someone else, the times when you don't want to be responsible for a nuclear warhead, those times become more difficult. And our experience of time weighs on us in a heaviness that increases the perception we have of this is all about Daniel. And this will never change. So our sense of time is conditioned by impermanence and it's conditioned by our view of self and it's conditioned by our suffering. That's what creates our sense of time. And fundamentally, we don't live in a four-dimensional reality. We live in this spatial reality that is three-dimensional. It has height, depth, and width. But it doesn't take into account our perception of time because time is invisible. It is invisible. But think about your perception of music. 
music moves. It has sound. It has notes that go up and down. It has notes over a linear space. And some music is fast, and some mu music is slow. And your perception of that music, your perception of that experience is infinite. We all have different experiences of it. And time is exactly that way. We have different experiences of time, but we are totally stuck in the, in the belief that time is only this on our watches, on our clocks. Last, last time, two weeks ago, I talked about the history of time and the time before there was clocks. When we didn't have that kind of perception or that kind of belief. So we have created this linear sense of time and we're deeply stuck in it. So what's the way out? Because there is a way out. And that way out is to get that time is multi-dimensional. Time is not just on this clock, on this watch. It is multi-dimensional. And how do we make that shift? This is from a wonderful book called Time and the Soul by Professor Jacob Needleman. And he says, everything has its own kind of time. And we will never solve the problem of time without understanding this ancient truth. We will never manage time. We will never understand our past. We will never be able to prepare our future without grasping the unique coloration of time in every real human event. So time impacts every event we have, but we don't think of it that way. We think of it in a more spatial aspect. And each of us has a different relationship to time. So what drags on for me may be like that for you, and vice versa. So I propose that, based on the Buddha's teachings, there are at least eight dimensions of time, eight steps on the fourth of the Four Noble Truths. So that's what I want to leave with you tonight. So, the first of the Four Noble Truths is skillful understanding. And what is that understanding? In the sense of time, it's the understanding that time is variable and fluid. And that it is not one-dimensional. So that there are some times that I experience as open and spacious, and I feel free of the constraints. And there are other times that I feel so impacted by time, and I'm driven by time, 
and I'm caught on the freeway with a zillion cars, and I'm not going to make it on time to whatever meeting I'm supposed to be to, and I am driven by time at that moment. And we've all had those variable experiences. So what if you got that time was multidimensional? That you could experience parts of your day and parts of your life in different dimensions of time. Recognizing that sometimes you would be caught in the pressure of clock time. But in other times you're not. And we have all had those experiences of the great spaciousness of time. So the skillful understanding, which is the first of the Eightfold Path, is that time is multidimensional. And then the Buddha said that once we had a deeper understanding of the way life works, we need to think and reflect in a different way. So right now we're having some reflective time. And you're either into what I'm saying or bored by it or some combination of both. You might not be as fascinated with time as I am or as driven by time as I am. And you may be wondering what happened to that nuclear warhead. (laughs) I'll tell you. I have to tell you a story in order to make sure you stay awake. So, reflective time is a different sense of time than clock time. And when we allow ourselves to have reflective time, we can relax and be present and know that this is a time when I am just being and reflecting on whatever is going on in my life, whomever I'm with, whatever is up for me. And it's not a time to be driven by the clock. So a skillful understanding that time actually has multi-dimensions and that I can allow myself to experience different dimensions of time unhooks us from the clock. Reflecting on that unhooks us. So if we reflected on time and we understood that time was not single-dimensional, we would remember, for example, the skillful speech that the Buddha teaches as the third step on the Eightfold Path. Wise speech, skillful speech. Now we all know when we engage in it and when we don't. We all know when we're truthful, when we're present, when we're kind, when we're open, when we listen. And when we do those things, what do we create? We create relationship with ourselves and with others. And if you haven't noticed, relational time 
moves differently than clock time. And one of the biggest struggles we have in relationship is that I don't appreciate your sense of time and you don't appreciate my sense of time. Because we're each and every one of us stronger in some of these dimensions of time. We have different appreciation for it. You could say, for example, as a broad generalization, that women are more present to relational time than men. That's certainly not universally true, and I think it's certainly in my lifetime been changing. But as an old saw, men were much, are much more focused on getting things done and work productive time, which is the next one I'll talk about, and women have a deeper sense of relational time. So if I'm hanging out with you and we're enjoying time together, but I'm looking at my clock consistently, wondering when the time is up or when my next appointment is, you know how that feels. It does not feel good. But some of us just can't grasp that there's a sense of time that's different than this. And relational time doesn't work by the clock. That's especially true if you're with a two-year-old who has no sense of time whatsoever, hasn't got caught yet in our craziness around time and is totally present in the moment, which is all any of us ever experiences. So allow yourselves, truly, allow yourselves to have relational time that isn't driven by the clock. So if I have a wise understanding that time is multidimensional, and that we all have different connections with it. And I reflect on that, and I think skillfully about it. Then I become more open to the fact that your experience of relational time may be different from my experience of relational time, and it might be good for me to open to your experience. And to be willing to be in relational time with you. And the fourth step of the Eightfold Noble Path is called skillful action. And that's where the Buddha introduces the basic precepts that guide our lives in a skillful way. In the Christian tradition, it's the Ten Commandments. The Jewish tradition, it's the Ten Commandments. The Muslim tradition has very similar commandments. The Buddhas, at least from my perspective, are so much more precise and so much more oriented towards actual human relationships and how they work. No killing, no stealing, no lying, no sexual misconduct, 
and no abuse of substances that cloud the mind. In other words, all things that give us a sense of safety with one another and a sense of connection with one another. Keep us present and keep us in integrity with one another. And some of us have a deeper sense of ethics and the skillful action. Others don't. And we have to allow for that difference and that relationship to ethical time. And then there's the time of the watch falling off the table. Then there's skillful livelihood, right livelihood, wise livelihood. We all have to work unless we inherited a big fortune or made a big fortune and we no longer have to do that. But we all have to work and we have to take care of ourselves, feed ourselves, bathe ourselves, nurture ourselves, make sure that we're healthy, drive ourselves from place to place. Right livelihood. And that one gets most of us because it seems to consume us. And it's the closest to clock time because it's actually where clock time arose. Before there were clocks, workers went out into the field when the sun rose and they came back when the sun set. And since that changed with every day and it changed drastically in the seasons of the year, the amount of the time they spent working was different. But not once we got clocks. Then it became an eight-hour day or a 10-hour day or a 12-hour day, whatever we did. And again, some of us are very skilled at that kind of productive, get-things-done time. And it's important for all of us to have that in our life and to make space for it and to allow it if we're going to keep ourselves together financially in this complex world. But that kind of time is different from relational time. And you might be much more tuned in to productive work time And I might be much more concerned with relational time. And unless we allow for that difference of perspective, unless we appreciate that it's simply a different relationship to time, we will have conflicts, we will have arguments and disagreement. And we've all experienced that tension. But if we take time as multidimensional and if we allow that it isn't driven just by the clock but it's driven by our different perspectives and connections to time then those conflicts will not be as sharp. And then the Buddha said it was important that whatever we did we did with a skillful effort. We put our best intention in it. And that is integrative time. And there's only one experience of time, always only the present. 
and integrative time allows us to rise to that level of being. For me, my mindfulness practice is an integrative time. Or my walks in the morning with my wife are sometimes alone if she's on a different schedule for me. My time in nature is integrative time. My time enjoying the Warriors basketball is integrative time, when I can relax and let go of my busy, constricted mind and my worries about whatever is happening on the planet right now. I allow myself to have some integrative time. And if you don't allow yourself to have that time, it's not so good. You get stressed. We get overwhelmed with the busyness of life. And we lack connection to one another. We lose relational time. We lose our ability to be present with each other unless we allow for the integrative time that connects us with ourself and connects us with life in general. And then the Buddha said our effort leads to mindfulness. We're more present, we're more aware of present in this moment. And mindfulness for me is when I develop myself. I can watch my mind and see what it's hooked by today. What its worries are. Where it's going. And when I'm not, when I'm so busy My mind may be doing that, but I'm not present to it. When I sit and I'm quiet and I allow my mind to reveal itself to me, then I see what's going on with Daniel. Where is he? Present is the only time that we ever experience, and it arises when we release the past, and the future, and just stay with our breath. Inhale and exhale. Inhale and exhale. I'm right here in the present. I'm mindful, and I can see the thoughts that my mind is spewing up, and I can notice them and go, oh, that's an interesting thought, but right now I'm safe. Right now I'm well-fed. Right now, I'm healthy, and that's the only time there is. And the worries I have about the future and the regrets I have about the past arise, and I can either grasp onto them and be taken away in either direction, or I can let go of them and remain present right now, developing myself. And the more we do that, the more we're able to concentrate our mind. And when our mind becomes concentrated, we actually move into the most graceful and beautiful time that we experience ever, eternal time, a sense of timelessness, a sense of the open and vastness of our being, and of the universe. 
where I am just here. Just now. Just present. And I'm not worried about the past. I'm not caught in the future. I'm not struggling with relational time or the rightness or wrongness of my actions, ethical time, or my work, my productive time, or whether I fail to be integrative in my life, or how my mindfulness practice is going, bad or good. I'm not judging it. I'm just present in the beautiful, eternal time of right now in this moment. I'm no longer defined by what I do or what I don't do. I'm not caught in the race. In that space, the mystery of time becomes inconsequential because it's just right now. And just think for a moment and let's sink in the fact that no matter how driven we are by our worries about the past and the future and how worries, worried we are about what we haven't done or what we need to do, the only time we ever experience is right now. And if we allow that experience to have multi-dimensions, in other words, to have time when we're productive, to have time when we focus on relationships, to have time when we focus on our mindfulness, to have time that we allow ourselves to open to the expanse of the mystery of life, to the eternal mystery that drives us to practice. Time when we can reflect, that we become skillful in our relationship to time, like we have learned to drive a car or handle any kind of instrument or work our computer. We become skillful with it. It's not something that drives us anymore. We shift our relationship to it. I wasn't even remotely conscious of any of this back in 1969 in the warehouse district of Alexandria, Virginia, staring at that uh, nuclear warhead. But it was a time that formed me in some ways because it revealed to me a part of myself that I have worked hard to let go of. The righteous, arrogant 20-year-old. Maybe you were never one of those, but I was. And I drove my commanding officer nuts. Because the old sergeant says, well, what am I supposed to do with it? And I said, 
as I said before, something that I won't repeat. And he said, well, I'm going to go talk to your commanding officer, who was a former enlisted man, so he was much more sympathetic than with a recent graduate of law school, like me. And out comes Major Ortiz, and he said, Lieutenant Bowling, are you causing trouble again? No, sir. And he says, well, I order you to receive all of this top secret material from Sergeant whatever his name was. And I said, sir, I'm sorry, that's an illegal order because it's illegal to have weapons of any kind go through the courier service. And I'm not going to sign for it because it's illegal. But you, sir, are welcome to sign for it if you'd like. And you could see the steam coming out of his ears. Because if he had signed for it, he would have to stay with it all night. Like I would have had to. But I wasn't willing and neither was he. So the rest of the truck got unloaded. And the last I saw of that nuclear warhead was that the doors of that big tractor-trailer truck closed and it headed back to 495 Beltway that goes around D.C. It's probably dumped over the side somewhere, I figure, along the Beltway, rusting. I don't know what happened to it. A time when the craziness of the world, now, given how crazy it is, seems rather quaint as I look back on it. Our protest of the Vietnam War, uh, marching with my military uniform on, protesting against the war in a quaint way but such a powerful time of recognition of what and who I was to become because it changed me from the direction that I was going to the direction that led me here tonight. And all of us have had those seminal moments in our life those seminal times that shifted our life in important directions. And if we look back at those events with regret or with happiness, we allow them to still contain us. As a moment of time, they still have their grip on us. Even though all we ever experience is right now. I cloud my right now with the moments that I regret and the moments that I can laugh at like that nuclear warhead and wonder about still what happened or the moments that we're very happy and joyful about and treasure. The choice is always ours but it must, from a skillful place, come from the recognition that all we ever experience is right now. So when you leave here tonight,
take these three, four words, always, only, the present. Always, only, the present. Let that be your practice of time. Always, only, the present. When your mind goes off into the past or worried about the future, bring it right back. Always, only, the present. We've got a couple of moments if you have any questions. Yes, one over there. I'm not sure if I missed this, but how did that moment in your past change you to what you became and who you are today? Like every moment in our life, it turns the direction of our life. So I ended up getting court-martialed because of my tendency to do things like that. That is just one example. And ultimately, my commanding officer caught me. There was some top secret material that was so important that you were supposed to have two people sign for it, two men, because only men were couriers. And routinely, we would flip a coin and whoever lost would sign for it and off we would go and the other one would go home. And the couriers that we gave it to had done the same thing, so nobody ever worried about it. But since my commanding officer was tired of my shenanigans like telling him what to do with a nuclear warhead that shouldn't have been there anyway, he court-martialed me. Now, it wasn't a big deal. I got fined $50.00. And I got my top, top, top secret security clearance stripped. But I was thinking of going into politics, going back home to South Carolina and running for office. And I didn't like the fact that I had this mark on my record. And I was transferred to some other office in the Pentagon and the major there liked me very much, and we had a good relationship, and I spent a good part of my time during the day preparing my appeal to my uh, court-martial. And one day he said, Daniel, I want to take you somewhere. Or he called me Lieutenant Bowling. And I said, yes, sir. So we go down into the bowels of the Pentagon. Down, 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 and we walk, and we walk, and we walk. Long corridors, no telling how many floors below the ground we are. And we come to a door. And he said, open the door. And I opened it, and it was a room about, oh, from the Buddha's table to the exit door, that part of this room. It was about that, that big a room. And in the room, lined all around all four walls, were desks at which people, men, were sitting with gray eye shades, and the, gr green eye shades, and they looked like they had cobwebs. 
It was something out of Dickens. And on every desk was stacked files from the top of the desk to the ceiling. And I looked in there, and I can still see it when I close my eyes, and then I closed the door behind, and I turned to the major, and I said, what place is this? And he said, that's where they determine appeals to court-martials. And I said, oh. And I still have the file for my appeal. I look at it every now and then to remember that. So that's how it began to change my life. Is that a good enough answer? You want a little more detail? Okay. Oh, one question over here. I said that the difficult concept is to expand from un, uh, being in the present to leap into universal time. Um, and perhaps it's just that you can only be in the present, so therefore that is universal time. Not quite, I think. I didn't use the term universal time. I used eternal. 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 And... The fundamental point is that our experience of time is multidimensional. If we pay attention so that I can be lost in time and hours will go by. I can be so deep in my meditation that there's no sense of time. I can be so caught up in my back is hurting, my hips hurting, my I need to go to the bathroom, that each moment in meditation is excruciating. I can be talking with a friend and be completely lost in my love and appreciation for that friend, be deeply in relational time, or I can be secretly looking at my watch under the table because I'm hearing for the hundredth time this story of how terrible my friend's life is. And woe is she, or woe is he. That's the kind of differences in time that we get caught in. And if we have some awareness that, oh, I'm just having a different experience of time. Time is multidimensional. Ah, ah, so. The present right now looks like the slowest version of Salvador Dali's painting with a clock sort of, you know, mushing all over the place. It's taking forever. Or what happened to the last four hours? I've had such a wonderful time with you, I completely lost track of it. Does that help? But what would you say eternal time is That's an experience when I am totally timeless. 
Yes, sir. But it, <clears throat> but it seems like uh, multidimensionality is actually just an illusion of the brain as opposed to a true difference um, that there is just a linear physical, you know, universal time. And our perception of it is what creates this idea of, um, you know, the, the relational time, eternal time, or productive time, just based on the milieu that that brain is placed in. And so I guess not much of a question, but rather just a clarification then is that... That's a good know, clarification because it arises from the fundamental confusion we have about time. We conflate, if you recall, especially from two weeks ago, if you were here, and I summarized that a little bit tonight, we conflate time with space, as in space between events. So, now I'm here. In some space, I'm going to be home. In some other space, I'm going to be at work. There is no such thing as time. Time does not exist. We only know the present, ever. We have a conception of the future, and we have a memory of the past, and that gives us a sense of linear time, and because of that, we suffer. If I allow myself to just be now, and now, and now, with a sense of curiosity and delight, and oh, this is interesting, this person is really boring. But here I am. Ah, that's nice. Oh, boy, I really have to, I'm so hungry, I have to eat. When is this going to be over? So time feels like it's dragging. That's my concept. And it's conditioned by whatever's happening in my life right now. Our concept of time is conditioned. by our thoughts, by our experience, by our worries about the past or future. That conditions whether our experience of time is expansive and open and delightful or constricted and it's never going to end. This is the longest lecture I've ever heard. I'm so uncomfortable with this person. I'm so worried about the future. Whatever the conditions are, they create the kind of time we're in. There is no such thing as this. This is something human beings created to measure nothing. <laughs> All right, good. <laughs> You, and then over there. And then we need, oh, and here. And if you need to go, please feel free. Yes, ma'am. 
Um, so if that linear time, you know, this is kind of like what enables us to kind of coexist and do things. Like if I have an idea of what time I'm going to go meet so-and-so to have coffee and that person shows up four, four hours later because you know, he's on his time, we're never going to meet. That's right. And in some cultures, their sense of time allows for that. So they don't have like nine o'clock. I'll meet you for coffee. And I show up and maybe you show up several hours later. And that culture allows it. Our culture is so driven by this that if I'm five minutes late, you're looking at your cell phone and wondering whether you should call me. We're totally driven by our concepts about time, and it causes great stress. Yeah, so I mean, for this example, okay, which is kind of a social thing, but, you know, for productivity, for things to happen, for things That's to right. be built, for train to not yeah. bump into one another, for, yeah. you know. <laughs> we all knew to be here at 7.30, and I made it by 7.35. The traffic was pretty bad coming from Sausalito. So, yes, it is a useful construct. But the fundamental point that I urge you to take is that because it has a multi-dimensional aspect to it, if you allow yourself into that multi-dimensional aspect, your experience of time will relax. And that's especially true when you're meditating or when you're with someone who's dear to you. You can really be present with them instead of thinking about what you're going to do next. That's where we're caught by time. And over here. Um, so when we're meditating, we can uh, notice that we're, our mind has gone off and we can bring it back and keep doing this and, <clears throat> and let the thoughts go. Um, but I experience uh, a... Uh, sort of a, dri a drive inside that it may be related to boredom or something else, maybe uh, sensory overload or underload or something like that. Um, and I was wondering how to deal with that. Um, I can, just as I uh, can think, I, I can put my mind to my breath or to uh, sounds and <clears throat> things around, I can put my mind to that too. But mm -hmm. that doesn't seem to relieve that pressure to get out of this here and now and get into something else. It just, yes. Is, yes. There, is there an answer to that that That's you are aware beautifully of? stated for being caught in clock time and productive time. Time as work. Time as right livelihood. Caught in doing. And so when I'm sitting, I'm not really doing. I'm not accomplishing. And I can't experience the sense of accomplishment that I get by my work or weeding the garden or whatever 
other kind cooking dinner or whatever I do. Well, I'm not having a sense of uh, I'm not getting something accomplished or anything like that. It's like um, I can feel good for a little while and then it's just a discomfort. It's not an intellectual thing like, oh, I got to get this done or something like that. It's just a, a feeling yes. that comes in. And what I'm saying is that's where that feeling comes from. And if you notice when you're not in meditation, when you're doing things, does that same discomfort, that same disconnection arise? I'm not aware of it until I have basically cleared my mind for a little while. Yes. And then it comes in, but there's no intellectual content to it. It's just like exactly. a, an ache in the, yes. in the joints or something. Yes. It's because we are all so driven by the doing that when we're not doing, the mind is going, wait a minute. What's going on here? I should be accomplishing something. I should be doing. Now, now the mind doesn't maybe put that into words. It's a sensor, it's a physical sense. I'm not active. I'm not typing or writing or digging or shoveling or walking or reading or watching television. And when we're doing those things, that part of us, that time-driven part of us, is quiescent. But as soon as we sit, we hear what is actually there all the time, driving us to do. So your question, your experiential reaction to my talk is really comforting. You got it. That's the whole nugget that I'm wanting to leave all of you with, that feeling is our conflation of time, which is non-existent. It's a ghost. It doesn't exist. We never experience it, but we're driven by it in the way you've described. And when I get quiet, suddenly there it is. We see it. Hi. Is <clears throat> on? Yes. Oh, you talk about the driven and stress of modern time, which I, you know, totally agree with and feel. But um, when agriculture started happening for human beings 10,000 years ago, they stopped wandering around in tribes and sat around in villages. Um, and scientists tell me people, there is no biological difference between people, to, human beings 10,000 years ago and today, but they didn't have time, at least as we know it. Yes. <laughs> because they certainly didn't have clocks. Yes. They couldn't write. They didn't have calendars. Yes. There wasn't such a thing as last year this happened. Yes. The most there could be maybe was this other village is three days walks away. Yes. I mean, the, the smallest definition resolution they had was not a minute or a second. It would be an entire day. Yes. And so 
<clears throat> that varied. Well, wasn't is so all this clock and time just just a it's kind of some modern mass delusion that yes. isn't in, inherent in human beings? Yes. Good. <laughs> <laughs> and that's there is a way out. It's not inherently biological. Exactly. It's not inherently biological. It's it's something that we have created. Our culture now is totally driven by it. None of us can go anywhere without seeing most of the people sitting looking at their gadgets. Driven by them. Just as we've been driven by time. And the way to not be driven by time is to appreciate its multidimensional nature. That to be effective in this world, I have to have a certain relationship to time. And I have to do things. And I have to accomplish things. And I have to be on time to work or on time to meetings. And I have to pay my mortgage or my rent on time. I have to do that. I can't be completely back in the ninth century. But I can appreciate that there is a sitting and a letting go and a coming present to that throbbing urge and to know what it is. Oh, this is time driving me. Here it is again. Also, ah, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. Oh, here it comes again. That driving sense of urgency. I need to be doing. Ha. Ah, inhale, exhale, let it go, be present. And gradually, we can train, retrain our minds so that we can be fully in relational time. We can know when it's right to be in productive work time. We can know when it's available to us to be in eternal time. Know that there are different experiences of time that we can open ourselves to. A little poem. The hour is striking so close above me, so clear and sharp that all my senses ring with it. I feel it now. There's a power in me to grasp and give shape to my world. I know that nothing has ever been real without my beholding it. I know that nothing has ever been real without my beholding it. And that includes time. All becoming has needed me. My looking ripens things and they come toward me to meet and be met. 